Welcome to this week's episode of Safe Room, BladeDisgusting.com's Dead Pixels horror video game podcast, delivering a horrifying new episode every Monday. I'm one of your hosts, Jay Krieger. And I'm the other one, Neil Bow. And for this week's episode, Neil and I are joined by BladeDisgusting.com contributor and gaming reporter for Newsweek.com, Harrison Abbott, to help us shine a light on why 11 years later, Alan Wake remains a standout horror experience. Harrison, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking about Alan Wake with you guys. Um, and I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've listened to it every single week, so it's really cool to be here and to be talking with you. Well, we definitely appreciate that. And I mean, in addition to, of course, being a fan of uh, your work for both Blade Disgusting and Newsweek, your continued support of the show has always been noticed and uh, much highly appreciated. And uh, we're thrilled to have you on as well to chat Alan Wake. So for those that don't know, Alan Wake was originally released in 2010 by developer Remedy, uh, the folks behind the original two Max Payne titles, as well as more recent games such as Quantum Break and Control. Famed novelist uh, Alan Wake himself uh, (laughs) finds himself in the sleepy and surreal Washington wilderness of Bright Falls. Once there, Wake's wife Alice is kidnapped and a perpetual darkness engulfs the area, turning the residents into possessed monsters. Um, So on paper, I think I need to start with... uh, how necessary do we feel an Alan Wake remake or remaster rather is 11 years later? I mean, this was not sort of the game I would assume would get remastered right out the gate. What about you, Harrison? I, I, I completely agree. I don't think that it, I actually played Alan Wake, just the, the standard version of it. Oh, it must've been like two or three years ago and it held up absolutely fine. I did not think that it, this was something that was crying out for a remaster at all. I imagine it's a case of much like the Crash Bandicoot uh, one they did a few years ago. It's a case of maybe gauging interest in doing a follow-up. You know, we sell a remaster. We don't have to invest a bunch of resources and effort into doing something totally new. And we can see if people are, if there is an appetite for more in the Alan Wake universe. At the same time, it, it was nice to play it again with, you know, upscaled cutscenes and slightly polished visuals i'd be lying if i said i noticed a major difference mm. but it, it it still look the game still looks good anyway so playing it on a ps5 it felt like a like a perfectly acceptable release for a next gen console rather than a game that is 11 years old now <laughs> yeah i was about the same opinion as you it just the idea that i was like well i just played this game myself for the first time probably five years ago but it was this sort of like welcome surprise where this wasn't really on my radar i was kind of like who really needs a remaster of that game because like you had said the original still looks good it still holds up fairly well in terms of how it looks and even from a gameplay uh standpoint you know it but of course the remaster also kind of irons out some of the maybe uh rougher patches that the game has but it did end up being this sort of pleasant surprise where i found myself of course, having these more upscaled visuals, and I played on uh, Series S, um, and it was the type of thing where I appreciated them, even if I didn't necessarily need them, but it's one of those remasters where, like you had said, it's just nice to have Alan Wake in the conversation again, because it does very much feel like a game that kind of came and went. It had this very niche audience, and perhaps sort of the just updated visuals is the maybe introduction that people that wouldn't have taken notice of it kind of just needed to be like okay well maybe i'll check that out now i mean it looks better maybe it plays better includes the dlc that i missed people like me who didn't play the dlc get an opportunity now to play that and it kind of just feels like 
the game that you don't necessarily think needed to be remastered, and yet it ends up being this pleasant surprise for a period where we're about to go into the holiday season and be kind of like inundated with games. So it is nice to revisit something and have the sort of additional polish that you'd like to see that might draw on people that initially were like, well, I don't know if that's necessarily for me or not. Yeah, absolutely. How about you, Neil? What was your uh, expectations going into it or maybe your previous past with Alan Wake? Oh, well, yeah, mine's very recent because um, obviously, as we discussed before, I've only had an Xbox console for the last couple of years. And so I only played Alan Wake finally last year, uh, the 360 version. And obviously that performed better anyway because of current hardware. But still, I feel there's enough here that sort of justifies it. I think the biggest thing about this is, you know, Remedy got back control of that IP. And so it made total sense for them to say, well, now we can just release it on everything. We can, you know, if that's possible. And which is what they did. And that's the key thing to it. It's a wider audience, a much, much wider audience than they would have got 11 years ago. You know, Xbox, even in its pomp, you know, is falling behind uh, most of the time compared to PlayStation numbers. So to have Xbox and PlayStation uh, players able to play it makes all the difference. And I think visually with some of the improvements they've made, it falls a little more in line with control. You know, not entirely, but, you know, because they do try and retain what it is. Um, but yeah, it, it looks a little more like it's there, you know, and in keeping right because I think they clearly plan to use it again you know to, to use Alan Wake again at some point uh, whether that be in Control's universe or in his own again yeah that was an element that in getting to replay Alan Wake after playing Control that was something that was a pretty rewarding experience and I liked playing in that order because if anything it gave me more of an appreciation for not only of course Alan Wake and Control kind of mm-hmm. like seeing where Remedy was building and kind of going towards and seeing elements from that. Also, of course, like their roots, like Max Payne and things like that and how it's further evolved. But I guess before we kind of like talk about Alan Wake and Remedy's sort of philosophy behind games and how you can really see a progression in terms of them running with sort of their maybe what used to be perceived as probably more abstract ideas or maybe these elements that are very much catering to sort of a... uh, more of a niche audience, perhaps, uh, from a storytelling perspective. But I mean, something that I wasn't expecting to have a newfound appreciation for was the episodic sort of chapter structure of Alan Wake and the breaking up of the game. I don't remember necessarily in appreciating that as much the first time I played it. How did that feature in the sort of progression of the game work for uh, you, Harrison, on your first pl- your first time playing through the remaster? Yeah, I think the when I, when I played it uh, again uh, for, for the remaster, I found myself wishing that more games were structured like this because it makes it yeah. so digestible. Yes, and you can you can break it up into these nice little segments where you play an episode in a city, yeah, and you get a nice uh, cohesive bit of story that that feels kind of self-contained. Obviously, it ends on a cliffhanger and you want to get to the next episode, but you've got a chunk of story that has been told in an hour or two. Mm. And compared to a lot of games now where it it can feel kind of endless sometimes, Mm. especially if you're playing like something open world like Far Cry, where it's just, it's, it's, 
it can feel never ending and there's it's a lot harder to break up your session or to feel like you've got a satisfying amount of story from a given sitting yeah. to have it structured like this it's i think it's so much more rewarding and it makes it feel manageable because you're you're always like i could do one more episode and at the same time even though it makes it digestible i i also think that it kind of compelled me to play for longer sessions because i was always telling myself i'll do one more i'll do, <laughs> yeah. I'll do one more episode <laughs> and because they end on those really 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 intriguing cliffhangers i never really wanted to stop so i ended up burning through this remaster in basically a day um <laughs> and that's i think that's because of the episodic structure rather than despite it yeah yeah i totally agree there um i i think of this especially now because I've been replaying Telltale's The Walking Dead, uh, the remasters of those, effectively, and the same thing applies there, which I like that I can do chunks, even within the episodes themselves, you can just do chunks, you know, that are very distinct, and you can pick up where you left off quite well. And, yeah, this game's, you know, this was um, also a thing for me with Hitman, when that came back and had this episodic structure, and how that was criticised as, oh, why do you want to do that? It's like, it made sense because really all that game was about was um, focusing on a level, seeing what you can do in it and moving on. And it worked well for that series. I think yeah, in terms definitely. of Alan Wake's storytelling, I mean, it, I think it was the first game to really do it, but it, it was the first significant game to sort of go with that episodic structure, you know, like it did and make it work. You know, and it does. And just... It feels very TV series rather than you know than anything else, and I think for what the story it's telling, it, it that's perfect because it does feel like it, you know your, your horror writer's TV show, you know, to be adapted. You know, the horror writer influences are all for it. Ironically, for an author that isn't actually a horror writer himself, it's um, uh, but yeah, it's. It, I've always found that to be a strong point of, of games that, that can you know, have chunks to them you know, that you can see point to sort of step away and like you said Harrison I think where you get to more open games it becomes a lot harder to sort of step away because you might you don't know what's coming next or you're reluctant maybe to carry on because you don't want to get drawn into this whole long thing you know that uh, whereas there yeah. it, it, it's I, I think of right now Resident Evil Village this year where you know there are bits in there where you're like yes you've got clear endpoints between stages but they are long stages you know in that regard and so you sometimes just don't want to go that little bit further because you think well I could end up having some drawn out battle here or something and I don't really want that and you know, so I'll stop for the night you know I appreciate not everyone's like that now these days again, but yeah, when you play many, many a game, you, it starts to become a thing where you kind of appreciate games that respect your time. Um, we were Definitely. talking about, I think a few weeks ago, actually, with Devil May Cry, where you know that episodic structure where every level is very short and sweet, you know, and it's perfect because you can just go back, jump in, go around again, and it feels like nothing, and nothing ever drags on too long. So even the stuff I used to think in that game dragged on too long didn't when re revisiting it because 
compared to you know modern day stuff you know it, it's quite brief and punchy and while you know Alan Wake is a bit longer but yeah when you look at Remedy's later work it it, it does feel positively you know, snappy by comparison absolutely and the thing is I think it really benefits the game as a whole because even though I had played it about three years ago three years prior to the remaster mm. I remembered pretty much every single encounter every single area of this game I think because <laughs> it's so succinct and it's not got any filler it's it's every single part of the game that's there is there because it needs to be mm. and the episodic structure helps as well because you go like the first episode that's the one where you go to the, the lumber mill you remember like the fourth episode being the one where you start in the clinic and it's it makes every section of it memorable and when you're playing yes. it again I, I'm always like looking forward to parts that I remember rather than yes. just mm. playing through repetitive sections or, or so often with a lot of modern games it can feel like every, any given hour of the game is interchangeable with the rest of it but that's not the case with this one at all because it's very purposefully structured and it's it's got a real sense of progression to it that just keeps you hooked. Yeah, which I find is probably the best benefit to that is because where the game does feel repetitive is elsewhere in terms of like the encounters for yes. for the large part are you know very repetitive and but because they're broken up in that way and you have little things in between them that are a little bit different and just by the very nature of the combat being a little unusual compared to most combat-focused games, is that, you know, it, it doesn't bother you so much. You know, you can get away with repetition if you break it up in the right way. And mm. this, again, just speaks to this structure that they've put in place with, with episodes to give you a break and to sort of... Mm. Yeah, it's, and we've seen this with later games and earlier games. It's... The presentation, you know, it's just how they put things across makes it work and makes it tick. Yeah, and I think that it's funny now, like thinking back to when this game was originally released, this is a game I probably would have blown through like Harrison did in like a day or two, right? And Hmm. nowadays, I don't have as much free time to do that because of work and commitments and things like that. So I'm approaching the episodic nature of it from the the, uh, sort of like figuring in time to actually play the game and play it in a manner that doesn't feel so start and stoppy. Obviously, very much there's direct parallels to how we consume TV, right? It's kind of like Harrison said, it's this idea where, well, if it's a 45-minute episode, you watch one, you get hooked into it, it ends on a cliffhanger, you're like, well, maybe I could squeeze in one more, even if in reality I can't because I'll be a wreck at work tomorrow. But (laughs) it's this idea that you fall into this pattern and that has to be obviously accompanied by storytelling that is compelling, that is engaging, that is something new, and especially in a game, right, where we're not talking about a eight-hour uh, series, we're talking about a 10 or 12-hour game, depending on, you know, how much exploring you're doing, and it could even be longer than that when you factor in the DLC and then finding all the manuscript pages in these things. So from a convenience standpoint, I appreciate the episodic structure of the game, right? You get to play it for these chunks, yeah. and then you can have a very definitive endpoint for your current session with the game, pick it back up you get that lovely recap and you get that fantastic or for the most part you get those fantastic sort of cliffhangers and it has that feel of a tv show right they've got this song that plays at the end of it and whatnot and it feels very cinematic and then from the other standpoint it bleeds into the game's approach to uh the sort of intermedia 
aspect of the game, which I think, again, when you're talking about Remedy games, you see a lot, or at least I see a lot of like Max Payne storytelling in Alan Wake. It's it's much more in line with this writer and this horror element. And there was a little bit of a horror twinge to Max Payne at times, but this is really an element that I think has aged much more gracefully than probably any other element of Alan Wake. I mean, for you, Harrison, how are the intermediate elements of the game? Yeah, it's my, it's the thing about the game. There's so much that I do love about this game because I, I first played it when I was about, I think I was 15 when this came out. And so I don't remember which game it was in reference to, but I remember Neil talking about one of the other episodes that there's that point in your life where you're quite like impressionable and you watch mm. everything you watch is amazing and mind blowing. And for me, Alan Wake hit at that exact point where I was like, all of this stuff is so revolutionary. Everything this game is doing is amazing. And a lot of that was to do with the intermediate stuff in the game. So, uh, for example, you have these Night Springs uh, TVs, the the, the TV sets that you find throughout the world that play this like Twilight Zone-esque show called Night Springs. And it's live action media in the game itself. They don't really... They don't really add anything to the narrative of Alan Wake itself. They don't explicitly tie in to what's going on in Bright Falls. They don't shed any light on the backstory or anything like that, but they all feel in keeping with what's going on. They explore very similar themes about things like uh, doppelgangers, alternate realities, time travel, things like that. And they have similar themes, similar notions, and similar kind of uh, questions that they raise, they're completely skippable. You don't have to watch them, and your experience wouldn't particularly be lessened if you missed them all. But I love when games put stuff like that in for you to find, because it feels all the more rewarding if you do go out of your way and you do discover them, and you know that someone else might not have found them. And the game is filled with stuff like that, especially in the remaster now, where it's got like these QR codes dotted yeah. around the world that take you to these cryptic YouTube videos. Um, the, I, I, I read the thing on Bloody Disgusting, delving into those, and they're absolutely fascinating. And that's the kind of stuff that I really love about Remedies games, when they, when they just experiment with these weird things. And if you listen to Sam Lake in the commentary track, talk about why he chooses to include them he basically just says because i wanted to <laughs> you know he doesn't have a, a a big artistic reason he doesn't he doesn't particularly justify it as being that integral or important to his overall vision it's just i thought it would be cool and yeah. so i decided to throw it in and he's absolutely right it is cool i don't know why i love the night spring broadcasts so much but every time i play this even though i've seen them countless times I will stop and watch them funnily enough uh, recently I was playing the indie game uh, Bloodwash and like when you're in the laundrette in that place it has a TV with all these little clips of actual movies and things like that which you know this game is like uh, PS1 style graphics and then you have this like very grainy very old school sort of images of what are trailers for old movies and stuff like that on like and it sets a certain kind of atmosphere for me where it's like this whole, you know, stuff you might find on late night TV, you know, the things you wouldn't have otherwise discovered. And, you know, stuff that in Alan Wake 
feels like that to me again. It's just, it feels like you're watching some sort of forbidden fruit, if you will. You know, something you, you would never, if you weren't the sort of hardcore person staying up late at night facing monsters in the dark, you, you wouldn't be watching this program. And it, it's, it feels like you're part of some secret club in a way. You know? And that, that's, which to me is was always a very big thing about discovering horror and weird shit, you know, at night is that, you know, it, it was there, you know. And for me, because I was awake late for a lot at, at that time, it just, you know, there's nobody else was like that around me. So I was like, oh, yeah, I got to see this last night because I stayed up like that. And so when you found someone else that was like that, it was like this big, exciting thing where you could talk about these things that only you had both seen. And that's what those shows yeah. feel like. Very much like that way. It's like, like you said, not everyone's going to sit down and actually just watch them like that but I, you know I did because it's just like I, I find them fascinating and I want to see what happens in them and having seen what they did later with Control you know with all their little videos and that you know which are wonderfully demented <laughs> it, it, it just um, I think that this is an overlooked thing about what Remedy do is that they do the collectibles really well you know um, so many games do like audio logs and notes and things like that but they don't make them particularly interesting. They're usually just like ways to punch you in the emotions. You know, you go, oh, this thing, sad thing happened to these people, or <laughs> this is a slight clue to the thing that's about to jump out behind you. Uh, I think to control and all those little you know, files you find on these mysterious happenings, and it's just so in universe and so the sort of thing you find, perfect like that. And in Alan Wake, just a lot of that stuff is there. Like not just the TV, the radio stuff you know, as well, where they're just little hints and clues of stuff that's going on and, yeah, it's and the manuscript pages as well yeah, the manuscript, which, oh yeah it's it it's literally give you hints about what's going to happen in some cases it's just like <laughs> it's brilliant and, and it just again very in universe very perfect for what the story they're telling and the way they're telling it it makes sense you know and I there's so many games that just don't give that care they're just like trying to feed, they're just so, oh, we couldn't think of a way to fit the rest of this story into the, to the game. So we're just going to pepper it about in audio logs or torn or letters left behind. Yeah, which yeah. becomes a joke in itself, you know, because it's like, oh, you know, how, how would anyone leave all this stuff out, you know, these crisis signs? But in the world of Alan Wake, where you're never sure of anything's even bloody real, it's a case of like, great, this makes great sense that this would all you'd be drip fed weird information here there and everywhere and it, right down to writing it, it's perfect in that sense and yeah it it's just embodies everything that's great about what Remedy do well I think purposeful is the best way to describe it right again like not every episode or even any of the episodes in Night Springs necessarily propel the plot of Alan Wake's struggle and sort of explain what he is uh, specifically encountering but it is very thematically relevant, like Harrison said, it introduces certain topics that are explored in different and weird ways. But there is this sense that, and it's, uh, it's funny, Neil, we've mentioned now Kojima in probably the last three weeks of episodes, but <laughs> I started, I, the entire time I was playing this game, I was thinking how Sam Lake and Kojima both share the quality that they understand the worlds that they've created so yes. incredibly well that every single thing they put in it that can be consumed by the player it serves a purpose even if it is not in service of just the narrative, right? Or it is not sort of yeah. telling you, oh, there's a weapon locker over here, the code's 666, whatever. It 
it feels like they are crafting more of the world so you have an understanding of it so that way when the truly batshit insane things that happen that they can't even explain sometimes it gives it a relevance within the world that you're like well of course that would happen of course a bunch of uh steel beams and trash cans would become possessed and then fly (laughs) across the uh, map and try to hit me but it is something that i didn't necessarily appreciate as much on my first playthrough and it does again feed perfectly into the episodic structure of the game because it literally does feel like you're playing this interactive tv show in a way Mm. that doesn't feel like it is gimmicky right I think now a lot of the times I've played episodic narrative games, but I'm like, does this really need to be broken up? I would much rather just play this through. Whereas something like Alan Wake, it feels like a consumable, consumable TV series that is actually fun to be interactive, but also just sort of like exploring this weird niche uh, corner of horror, something akin to uh, Twilight Zone, like we had mentioned in a way that, is so satisfying in a way that I so very rarely experience in games. And it's something that I think it's really, I've been pleasantly surprised to see them kind of run and expand with on their more recent titles, right? We saw it with Mm. Quantum Break and of course Control, which you mentioned, Neil. Um, But I think I want to take it back for a second to the manuscript pages, which Harrison mentioned. And that I think is one of the single best elements of this entire game. And I think that we should talk about it more than it just being sort of, it doesn't just provide like lore, right? Or it doesn't just sort of flesh out backstory. Quite literally, it gives you glimpses at what is going to happen. What has Mm. happened previously behind the scenes that the player hasn't experienced themselves as Alan Wake. And that is so crucial because, I mean, it's kind of like telling the punchline of a joke and then telling the joke. And yet it still works in a way that I think you have to attribute to Sam Lake and the rest of the writing team and how they've crafted this world that the unimaginable is going to happen, but it is so plausible within the confines of this world they've constructed that being told what's going to happen in 20 minutes or explaining the mystery of something that happened is not only compelling, but it further kind of just engrosses you in the world of Alan Wake. I completely agree. I do think it is maybe my favorite aspect of the game. Uh, I, I have a th- I really like collectible documents in the games or <laughs> I'm fascinated by them I don't always love them there are definitely games that don't handle them quite so well I can think of like Outlast 2 is a game that relies uh, on the <laughs> document <laughs> it's a game that requires you to read certain documents to even have the vaguest understanding of what's going on in certain situations but in the case of Alan Wake what I love about it is that they allow the player to decide how much they want of the story explained to them. Yes. You can go through Alan Wake and emerge at the end of it completely baffled as to what the Dark Place is, as to who Thomas Zane is, as to who Cynthia Weaver is, all these things that the game mentions. If you don't look for certain manuscript pages... uh, listen to certain conversational details in the environment. A lot of that stuff goes completely over your head. But if Mm. you want to find out more, it's all there for you. And it it ties into something that's said at the very, very, very beginning of the game when Alan's narrating. He says that, he quotes Stephen King, saying that uh, explanations can be antithetical to the poetry of fear. 
Mm. And I guess what he's getting at there is that sometimes if you over-explain a horror story, it can kind of take away from the mystery and yes. make it seem a little more mundane. You know, you you play certain horror games, and if they tell you know, Silent Hill Two is a great example. Silent Hill Two does not spell anything out for you, no. and so the mystery of it is retained throughout. Some horror games go the other way and explain everything, and it <laughs> it can be satisfying in the sense that you get the answers you're looking for, but you you kind of ruin the mystique of it a little. And Alan Wake is in this perfect middle ground where it lets you kind of choose what you want. You can get the answers if you want. But you can also uh, kind of get through it as this David Lynch-esque thing that makes no sense. If that's the experience that you want, it's completely up to you. And I think it's such a, it's a thing only video games can do, like allow the audience to dictate how much of the story is spoon-fed to them and how much they remain in the dark about. Yeah, it's like, it it comes back to the interpretation of media, you know, um, when you watch a film or you read a book, you, know, you can come away with your own interpretations of how that's supposed to be viewed. You know, and games take it to like the third dimension, basically, where you are able to influence it in a more direct way. And that again feels perfect for this, this sort of meta nature of you know, a writer making a story up on the fly that's affecting him and the player and the player's actions are therefore affecting the story to some degree but all the same the story is always written it and you know it, it's mad because we, we reference you know it's very tv like in terms of episodes but it also basically also plays out like a book because it's chapter based right. uh, you know, and uh, you have the very clear chapter structure there in terms of how things go and it's, again, it's just really smart, you know, it, as much as it's probably a very loose idea of like, oh, yeah, we should totally do this and this because that sounds cool. Um, they don't just treat it like that when they're actually making it. You know, they still put the effort into making it look like it was, you know, always intended, like, you know, from the beginning. This was always our idea, not just that we're like, oh, we had a cool idea and then we just sort of did it, you know, which. Yeah. yeah, I I know that's it's never that simple in terms of creating a video game, but there are places where you can see that in, in some games where it's just like well, they had the idea first, didn't do much after that, you know, and and this is not that, you know, I, you can just see it in any remedy game, you know, that there is so much thought into the world behind it and everything about it. I mean, the amount of meta takes you can get from Alan Wake in itself is like that, um, you know. <laughs> the original author is there supposedly as the creator of you know, Max Payne effectively and, and that mm-hmm. bleeding into that and then Alan Wake then turns up as to be a part of control you know and it just this continuous thing where the games sort of are in and around each other is probably the most Stephen King thing about the whole thing when you think about his Dark Tower epic where you know he really does just self-relate to you know, the point of becoming you know an Ouroboros but it's um but it, it's great and it's just it's fascinating to see that because I, I you know I didn't say that as a criticism I really dig that about Stephen King's work that you know he's gone long enough where he's like I can connect what the fuck I like it's all my, in my head anyway so it, it makes sense and this is exactly Remedy's sort of thing I know 
King gets the reference points in this as much as Lynch, uh, because of the setting and because you know they directly reference King at the beginning. But as I said in the review of the remaster, it's like there's a very Dean Coots feel to it as well. You know, there's a bit of Phantoms there. I don't know if you've ever seen the film of Phantoms. Yes, of that I was going to. That was exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, that, that that feels very much that. But Koontz in general, you know, he has this like, uh, oh, there's this impossible enemy and this impossible situation that doesn't make sense, but it is still real, you know, and it's all about the protagonist trying to figure out how to play within the rules of that. And that translates really well to a video game. And yep. there, there it is, Remedy doing that. They do that here, and I even think in control. And Quantum Break to agree, it's there. There's aspects of that Dean Koontz style in there. As much as King gets referenced, that's more about the meta stuff, I, I feel. Whereas Koontz's stuff is more about how the story plays out and how Alan interacts with it. And I think a lot of these authors and uh, creatives that we're re- referencing that are clear inspirations. The reason they work in Alan Wake is why it works in all of those creatives' works, right? They build a mm. world around these concepts and ideas and themes that allow them to exist in that world in a way that makes sense for the story, right? I mean, King, he's having all these worlds collide within his novels. He provides, though, a context for that actually making sense. And yeah. for not... for. For serving more of a purpose than just being like a wink and a nod to the people reading, right? And I think that that comes yeah. across in the characters and sort of the way in which those narratives bleed into one another in a way that's very organic. It's the reason why Lynch's films, are, and I guess also like King, like you can always spot somebody that is trying to do an impression of one, whether it's Lynch or King, trying to do an impression of them because they haven't done the work necessarily to have yes. that sort of surreal nature the bizarreness work as well as it does in a David Lynch film or having the uh, bleeding of worlds in a Stephen King novel. And I think that's something that Alan Wake does phenomenally well, right? It's obviously the writing is a test. It's a testament to the writing that it works so well, but also something that I think is really a standout, especially in the remaster is the voice actor for Alan Wake, that being Matthew Peretta, um, which is yet again, a fantastic voice choice uh, from Remedy, right? I mean, of course, James, uh, I believe it's James McAvery for Max Payne. Um, but just in terms of like finding people that are terrific in fulfilling this voice for a character that really does bring them to life. And it mm. brings that character to life quite literally like off the page, right? I mean, Max Payne from if you just read about it, okay, it's a cop that loses his family. He goes after the mob, right? It couldn't be more dull than that. But you get a true sense of who this individual is and Yes, part of it is the writing, but it's also, of course, a testament to the phenomenal voice acting. And I think that that was, again, something that I didn't necessarily appreciate quite as much as I should have the first time I played it. Uh, Chalk that up to me being uh, very, very young and dumb. But I think also that bleeds into what uh, Harrison was saying in terms of Mm. the manuscripts. They're there if you want to search them out. And it's not something that you have to wander in a random direction for 15 minutes to find. As far as collectibles go, they are pretty easy to stumble upon. Um, you yes. go any couple of minutes in any direction, you'll come across one or two. Yeah, and the game basically encourages you to try and explore, not necessarily for the manuscript pages, but for supplies to carry on fighting. Absolutely, yeah. And then yeah. pairing those, I think, is a wonderful thing because it keeps the people that are obviously really their drive is the gameplay. But then it also gives them the opportunity to experience more of the story, which perhaps they might not have been inclined to like a, a much younger Jay was the first time he played this. 
But <laughs> it is the type of thing that that pairing of story and gameplay and giving a gameplay reward rather than just a narrative reward, I think that really is a concept that getting to experience Alan Wake now on both consoles, right? We're going to have a bigger player base having exposure to this at uh, than yeah. initially at launch. I think that's something that could really help certain players branch out from maybe their comfort zone. They're like, oh, well, that was interesting to learn some insight. I'm getting a little more into the story. And now all of a sudden, they're more engrossed in this narrative game than they maybe would have been inclined to initially. And who knows how that affects how they approach games in the future. Yeah, I think... Um going back to what you're saying it's like not only does you know control have alan wake moving back into it but then as we said max Payne itself you know the very way it works it, it does feel like it when you have then played alan wake it and you have this notion that you know zane has basically written that book whatever and it's like okay, this makes sense because you think of how that book is done mm. and how Alan talks. You know, he is basically doing the, the same let's narrate the fuck out of everything thing that Max Payne does in the book. So if Max, if Max Payne is books, then it makes perfect sense because you're writing a noir, you know, and you know, everyone just talks about everything and does it in these really, you know, intoxicatingly beautiful ways you know of making dark things sound like they're alluring but then you know and then you meet someone like alan wake who that's how he talks that's how he acts and it, it's just a, he is very much the i'm sniffing my own fart sort of writer you know it's like it's like yeah i, I really i'm a humble guy but also i i'm very much into my own shit you know i, I get it I, I like i like myself um Obviously, he has a little bit of disdain for himself and insecurity um, in terms of he, he likes to drink you know, and he's um, not quite figured himself out. But yeah, it's like the way the story's written out and you know, if you go with the connotation that he is responsible to some degree, it makes sense that he would be so narcissistic, you know, and be so into it. You know, it's not you know, to be a bad thing necessarily because some of the best writers can be absolute arseholes. You know? <laughs> it's like, uh, they can be the worst people you'd ever want to meet, but they can write a fascinating story. And this is exactly what it, it feels like with Alan. I, I went back to, uh, before we started this, I said, it's like the horror has these, horror gaming has these two great writing or journalistic protagonists, you know, that aren't just, you know, action heroes or or cops or whatever, and you know, in Frank West in Dead Rising and Alan Wake here, that you know, you know, Alan Wake runs out of breath after a short run. You know, he <laughs> he dodges like a drunk, and you know, he's literally useless if he doesn't have the right weaponry, and he basically has to materialize any sort of defense, you know, in his story, you know, that to make it work yeah i mean to the point where you get to the end of the game and the dlc the first dlc the signal where you know he is literally having to materialize it with his torch to you know things he needs in the world you know and it's <laughs> as blunt as that is it, it makes perfect sense because it's like yeah it, it just feels like a writer's sort of approach to things and i, I think again this is where lake and his team have done such a great job it's a self-depreciating look at 
how people write things you know it's like knowing that you know you are going to be egotistical and think that you have to use all the big words and be make everything sound like an analogy and that it you know when you i think this is why it it's a critic's favorite in a lot of ways is because of that it's because it makes people think oh yeah i've done this right. i've had this. <laughs> that's <laughs> like why that. it's so and, and, yeah and half and the is plot is instigated by having writer's block in the right. first yeah. place yeah. I, it's just like and that's probably why it feels more personal for writers it's just that that it's just he is the epitome of that you know, the ego and the fragility of any given writer is right there in terms of him and it's yeah it, it's it's special in that regard yeah I need to uh, correct myself for a minute Max Payne's voice actor was James McCaffrey I can't uh, I can't mis- can't mispronounce the uh, the story to James McCaffrey but I think it's interesting that you raise the point about Alan's journey being really identifying this sort of darkness in his life, this cloud that's hanging over his head. And of course that bleeds in from the narrative to the gameplay. Right. And I think it's really interesting how the game tackles such a simplistic concept of like light versus dark, but it plays out amongst both its narrative and its gameplay. I mean, Harrison, for you, how does remedy handle that? Uh, the very simplistic thematic, and yet it makes for a 10 hour experience that I think for the most part, we all enjoy. Yeah. So the thing is, the first time that you encounter a Taken and introduce this concept of, yeah, you can shoot them, but until you basically burn away the shadows around them with the light source, you're not yeah. doing any damage. The first time it introduces that, it's a really cool idea. And as we've kind of mentioned earlier, it does, the, the encounters repeat quite a lot over time, but Remedy managed to mix it up just enough that it never feels like it's getting too monotonous. So... Yeah. For example, there's a bit where you have to stay in the spotlight of a helicopter that's flying above you. Mm. So Mm. now the objective is not so much to shine light on the enemies as much as for you to move and keep in the light. There's a bit in one of the DLCs where there's a a lighthouse uh, that's constantly rotating. And so it adds this kind of element of timing into it. It's almost a bit like a platformer at that point where you've got to time your movements through the world. It's it's the same through the um, the, the sort of fields you go through in the signal where you have to sort of time yourself going to the floodlights, you know, each time just make sure you reach the next one, make sure you reach the next one in time like that. Yeah, it's a common theme like that. And like that to me is a thing that the game does pretty well it plays with very common ideas of how games should work yeah grenades in in any other game oh it's about making a big explosion here it's like no no no. the flashbang is mightier than the grenade (laughs) it's like pretty much (laughs) it's like and here it's like you know as you said jumping instead of jumping platforms you are trying to jump between light sources in certain sections and it, that's what I really enjoyed uh, about the whole game is that there were just these little instances where they subvert the very basic idea of every other game's combat system, you know, and the light thing. To, you know, the light thing I struggled with for so long to sort of understand and really tackle what it was trying to say, you know, and, and understand that you really did just have to keep focusing on the light until you fully stunlocked them effectively and take them out. But that's because you know early on you're just panicking so much about 
I've got to make sure I kill them all before they, they get gain on me. And the whole dodge button being the run button thing just makes it a bit difficult, you know. Just, yeah, it, but yeah, it, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt too much, but there you go. <laughs> it's interesting as well, but um, I can't remember if it's the case in the remaster, but it was certainly the case in the original. The, all of the batteries that you find in the game world, they are explicitly, uh, I think they were energizer batteries. Yeah. So it is like a, an element of product placement, yep. which I yeah. find really they, strange considering they remove the, that. <laughs> they did remove that. Yeah, they did. Yeah, because because Verizon was also in there, and they removed that for the remaster as well. Because there right. were big like banners and things around the game world that said Verizon in massive letters, and it's just like <laughs> one of those things where you're just like, this that is such a byproduct of the era that I'm so thankful they took yeah. that out. Because, but uh, in fairness, also Riot that sells out. Yeah, <laughs> that is true. That's that sounded like a uh, a PR excuse right there. See, yes, it's part. It's a continuation of the narrative and the characters. <laughs> I'm sure they'll thank me for that. Yeah. <laughs> it's really interesting though that they would want that product placement, considering that hmm. one of the main premises of the gameplay is that those batteries they run out like after <laughs> absolutely <about> shit thirty <laughs> seconds of use. Yeah, yeah, but most people are using them to like power their TV remotes, you know, not take down shadow people. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, so. again, taking it back to the most simplistic sort of way that you can talk about this game, it's really genius that they make a light source the most valuable tool in the player's arsenal. Right? I mean, flashlight is much mightier than the gun. I mean, it is that type of thing where it's like, how often are you playing a game and the flashlight is almost completely obsolete. It's there's so, it's so rare that right. like you actually play a game where you have to use a flashlight to get through an area, right? Whereas in this, yeah. it, it's both a, uh, a helping hand in terms of traversing the environments, but also in combat. And I just think that's so yeah. ingenious in that, I mean, we'll get into the combat in a little bit and talk about some of the shortcomings of it maybe, but I think that at its core element, they take something that is so typically overlooked or it is almost like a complete throwaway feature in some games and they make it essential to the player's survival so much to the point that it is your only means of survival in the early sections of the game right where you keep alan falls into this kind of uh this infinite regress almost of losing his gun getting a flashlight finding a gun losing and so forth and so it's really interesting just to see and it those instances really reinforce that there is more so than just, okay, you need this flashlight to see in this very dark game, right? And I think that that is something that on paper just sounds very simplistic, and yet Remedy's ability to make it applicable to both environmental traversal but also combat is really what makes the gameplay stand out more than it just being another third-person shooter, right? I think that that could have been a very simplistic pitfall for a, on paper, simple game to fall into, and yet it has this defining trait that I think is really defining for the entire Alan Wake experience, both through the gameplay, but also in terms of the uh, the narrative. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And they also do a few just, just clever little ways of being economic about it in terms of game design, where they use that, they use the light for everything. <laughs> so for example, in, in a game like Resident Evil 4, when you aim your gun, you'll have the red dot sight. Or in another game, you might just have some kind of reticule. But in Alan Wake, the way that they show you where you're aiming your gun is it's where the torchlight is shining. Yeah. It, it substitutes for the reticule. And then 
checkpoints in this game are basically the the streetlights that you run into, the safe havens they call them. Mm-hmm. It's just they do they find a way to make that light integrate with every aspect of game design, so that it's not just it's not just a case of there's this one mechanic that involves light. It's it's everything about the combat and everything about the game is inflected by this light idea. And I think they're really clever about how they use it. Well, yeah, I mean, think about how the new trend in a lot of games, well, I guess it's been for probably almost 10 years now, but to show the player where to go and not have a big sort of like flashing reticle, they'll have like a smear of paint or they'll have like in Doom, the green. you always look for the green light. Oh, I can traverse this. And this is just such a, again, simplistic but seamless integration from gameplay and narrative of the light being the focal point of the direction the player should be heading in, in a way that, Mm. again, yeah, you say that and you're like, well, duh, it's a dark game. Of course, you're going to head towards the light. But it's, again, a credit to Remedy's writing and of uh, Sam Lake in particular, their ability to take all of these variables and blend them into this world that complements the parameters that it sets in basically every single facet. Um, And to take it back to some of the other gear that you get, I mean, yeah, you find a variety of guns, a handgun, rifle, shotgun, and various upgrades for that. But also, like Neil had said, the flash grenades. Flash grenade is going to be infinitely more valuable in a game like this than a regular hand grenade. But also, like the flares. The flares, they don't necessarily take a chunk of the, uh, the taken shield down, but it no. holds them at bay. It keeps them at bay. They even I back mean, it's up. It's a shield. Yeah, it's yeah, a shield. It's a shield, basically. But rather than having, I mean, as supernatural as the game gets, rather than having Alan develop some kind of like, I don't know, supernatural power that lets him repel people, much in the same vein as control, um, mm-hmm. he has something that is intrinsic to those parameters of light. Light being the ultimate savior, the the uh, basically the cure-all for everything that he could possibly encounter. And not to mention that like the flare effect is absolutely gorgeous in this remaster. Mm, I mean, you want to talk about a game that, I mean, it's funny, we opened it talking about, does this game need a remaster? It's just kind of like a prettier version of an already <laughs> good-looking game. But Alan Wake, this exact moment looks absolutely gorgeous. And I think about yeah. one particular moment where I believe Alan is up on a hilltop and he's been separated from Barry, his agent and best friend. And you can just see Barry light a flare from all the way down in this valley and it kind of it just basically reverberates throughout the entire woods and it is so hauntingly almost uh, reminiscent of like Mandy right there's a scene in Mandy with the neon lights that bleed through the woods and that moment and then getting to recreate that moment throughout the entire game and using those flares is just this this wonderful uh, obviously example of sort of the graphical fidelity and whatnot that comes with this remaster but the fact that it complements the game world just as much as it does the sort of visual eye candy. Yeah, there's like, and going to that lighting again is that, um, you know, that we were saying about how, you know, you are following the light, you're following the light. It feels so much more natural now to me, you know, coming from the original version where it was like, I don't know, it's weird to say, you could tell that it was almost forced that you were going to the light you know it's like this is where you need to go next yeah uh, but when you look at it now and the remaster with the, the improved lighting it feels more like you would in real life if you're in the dark and you see something in the distance and you'd be like that looks like somewhere i should go you know like, it, it doesn't feel like so much like a checkpoint if you will it, it feels like 
that's the natural place I need to go for safety. And, you know, it feeds into this idea of escaping the darkness and find the next place to be safe, you know. And, yeah, it, it's remarkable how much that adds you know, to the game in terms of that. That and the improved audio, I think, you know, it really just drives home everything that's, you know, atmospheric about that game. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've talked about combat this long. I wanted to bring up uh, a criticism that Harrison shared with us before recording. And it's a criticism that I share um, mm-hmm. in terms of just the sort of the game's propensity for enemies ambushing you and sort of how the scares mm-hmm. are almost entirely reliant on that within the course of gameplay. Harrison, I hope I uh, quoted you correctly, but it seems to be that that is an issue that definitely Harrison had and I definitely shared. And Neil, I mean, did you feel the same in terms of your experience with uh, Alan Wake in the combat? Uh, yeah, it feels cheap. Um, and to be fair, this is something I don't think Remedy ever get away from. Um, even Control has this, you know, where you just you get for an area, clear it, come back, and have to redo. You get jumped by a bunch of enemies again. It's just like, oh, you don't you don't want to do it. You don't want to have to do it, and you don't want to go for it. But Alan being the, you know, unfit fuck that he is, totally relate. Um, he's never going to get away from them without confronting them to some degree, unless, you know, you can see a light fairly close and you know how to dodge at the right time. But as I said, it's because the run and the dodge are essentially the same thing. Right. And in the moment, you've got to sort of separate them. That it becomes a problem, you know, mm. where you now have to sort of try and time things and I don't know it, for me it didn't work I, I that's never even in the original version it didn't work and here they've not really improved that and yeah I, th- this is the one thing I was kind of hoping they might sort of do something with to, to switch it out and change it but I, I get why in very much the same way as Resident Evil in its classic sense was reliant on tank controls to imbibe this sort of nightmare fuel sort of feeling, you know, where you are just in treacle. You know, this is... Everything about the world of this game is Alan's own insecurities, crippling any chance he has of being a superhero. You know, it's like... As as Jay was saying, it's like he could quite easily just write his way out of everything in a really spectacular neo-esque way but he doesn't because his own insecurities about his own problems constantly hold him back and push and drag him away from ever really being in total control of anything and so on on that side of it to me it makes sense it doesn't make it any less frustrating as a thing you know he's still an absolute shit to control and in the best of times and there's so many cheap deaths you know and things that feel very gamey where you just don't you know you have to sort of do it a few times to, to get what you actually have to do and I think that's just more of a thing of the time it was made in and you know where it is trying to be like any other game but also trying to do its own thing and there's a compromise between things and it's tricky to say the least and Remedy's strength is narrative not um, necessarily in combats 
I mean, you know, as much as control is a very good game and its combat can be good, you know, when it came out, you know, the combat was severely hampered by frame rate issues, you know, and, and because so they built this game around combat and then they didn't sort of allow for this, you know, and for the problems it would cause. And it wasn't until later where it, it finally sort of got justified, which is a shame because that game would have got, you know, as much as it was well revered, at the gate it would have got so much higher scores all around from critics, I think, if that hadn't been an issue. Uh, and but in very much the same way that for many years I was very forgiving of Kojima in terms of his combat stuff because that's not his strength it's the fact they do something interesting uh, and they subvert what you expect from combat that sort of makes it you you can give it a pass to a degree so as much as it, it is aggravating it can be an issue I understand narratively, thematically, why you can kind of sort of go, eh, it's all right. I got to say, the uh, the episode, to take it back to the episodic structure of the game, that structure largely saves Alan Wake Remaster from being a gruel for me in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because it so perfectly breaks up those combat experiences where, yeah. it, I mean, it, it again, Neil, to your further your point, that bleeds into the sort of TV structure and the narrative idea behind of why this is happening and all of that, because it's this idea like, yeah, of course you're getting another ambush. Like this is your new episode of Alan Wake. And it has this very uh, horror centric sort of just formulaic episodic structure to it. So of course you're going to get jumped here by three goons or five goons or whatever. But I mean, after a while it got to the point where I was thinking if I was, I mean, I didn't finish the remaster. I got, to the fifth chapter or something and then life got in the way. But just in that, I was like, well, if I played all the way through the game in one go and then jumped into the DLC, I would not be as enthusiastic about talking about Alan Wake probably. And granted, I played over the course of a week. So it was a thing where I could space it out. I could make it work so I could experience most of it. But if this was a game that I had to review and we were kind of talking before recording in terms of just the process of reviewing games and how Mm. if you're going to have to jam a game into the span of two days, it's like that's going to have an effect on you versus somebody that spends a week playing it. Your perception and your enjoyment of something might wane. And so Mm. it was to the degree where I was like, yeah, the combat further complements that episodic structure. Okay. I, I know what's going to happen. Like you get to a point where you can guess when the, the uh, ambushes are going to occur to the point where it's like, yeah. you're going to guess them five minutes in advance, probably before they happen. But when you're playing a, I don't know how long they are, a 90 minute or two hour long episode. And then you take a break after that. It's like, okay, I can give myself some breathing room. I can kind of like decompress and then come to it when I'm ready for it. But if you look at it kind of like as a linear game that doesn't have those chapter breaks, this would definitely be a more grueling experience for me, at least I think, um, which is the one element of Alan Wake that I really wish they had addressed in the remaster using it as an example or a rather uh, fault or criticism that was definitely there for the original game that they could have tweaked in a way that would have made it a little less of a chore by the end of the game. I mean, granted, sure. I think it was it's a 10-hour game or something like that. It becomes a bit of a chore, especially in those closing hours. Yeah, I mean, the biggest irony for 
that game was that it released at the same time as Red Dead Redemption. Yeah. And yeah, you know, that game is you know, a sprawling epic. By you know, 2010 standards, it, it was a sprawling epic of a game and you know, it captured hearts and minds by being the exact opposite of what Alan Wake is. And that unfortunately got Alan Wake overlooked, not to mention the fact that you know, Alan Wake was you know, only on Xbox and PC at that point. So, you know, it was unfortunate timing. We've seen this throughout many media over the years that one thing releasing against the other is going to fuck, probably fuck the wrong one up. You know, it's, I think of EA and Battlefield and Titanfall 2, you know, where Titanfall 2 clearly deserved the time, space and respect for what is one of the best games of that generation. Uh, but, you know, they released it around the same time. And that was it. And Battlefield was always going to win because name value uh, ended up winning out. And the previous game had only been on Xbox. So, yeah. Um, going back to that, it, it makes it very... It, it does just make it so smart that now they have released this game having exposed people who love control to the DLC there with Alan Wake and AWE and now they have this it it really does sort of give it the second chance it deserved and there are many games I think from that sort of PS3 360 era that didn't get their dues because of the way games had changed at that point the audience became massive for video games not necessarily for single player experiences uh, unless they were for, by certain companies but because of multiplayer and things like that and you know that that was the focus and so many games sacrificed themselves on that to that entity you know that, and made themselves that kind of game and so games like Alan Wake really suffered badly uh, in the general view you know, they had their fan base, they had people who loved it, and clearly that's what mattered because you know, a wise remedy wouldn't be able to do what they've done here. But yeah, it, it, it's important, I, I feel, that in that respect, that we have this remaster now, uh, less so because of upgrades and visual upgrades and things they may or may not have done with the gameplay. I think the important thing here is that they have just put it out again to give it the opportunity. And you can see it from the reviews. I think for a game that is 11 years old and has, apart from visuals, really not been touched up, it's still been received really positively, you know, like myself included, you know, it's like I played through it thinking, do I really care? Do I really like this this much for a while? And then it was like, because, you know, I played the original version. I thought it was good. I didn't think it was great. And I think a lot of that was to do with how the game was then. And I think there's... We discussed this with Quake. You know, it's like these little touches make so much difference. And, yeah, obviously I didn't come from the experience of the game as it was back then to now to sort of go oh it feels just like I remember you know but because it doesn't you know it definitely feels better but at the same time 
it feels better without betraying what the game is. You know, it, yeah. it is that same game to a T, and that's brilliant. That's what it should be. And all all remasters really go should be that. They should be the perfect version of the thing you watched before or played before. It's the same in movies. You know, it's like when you put a Blu-ray or a 4K version of a film out, it's like you don't want to take away what made that film special. You know, it's like, and, you know, I think of this, especially with Dawn of the Dead for me, where, you know, for years, the two main sources I had for watching that film were a scuzzy recording off TV on a VHS and then a DVD transfer in a trilogy DVD set that was you know, questionable and deteriorated very quickly over time. And then watching the 4K version is like, it's clearly clearer, but it, it reminded me very much of how I felt when first watching it whilst being better. You know, it's like, because nostalgia is the biggest poison for anything, any medium, anything. It's like you, you come back to anything and there'll be something you have learned in years since, whether it just be the way technology has improved or just your own personal worldview has built out, that things will not feel the same for you. And that can be really disappointing. And when, some, when something is remastered or reappraised in the right way, you are so much more appreciative of it. You know, you are so happy to see that you are remembering it right, even though you're not really. And I, this is that kind of game. You know, it, it it's not perfect. It never was. But what it did that you liked about it and what people probably liked about it back then is still present. It's just giving those little nudges forward that make it perfect for a new audience to come in and maybe appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, all you can ever hope for with these is a perfect version of, I mean, everything is imperfect to a certain degree, but it is very much an imperfect game. And yet it is the best way to experience the game. And I think that again, it's more about accessibility and that's me getting on my, my brief soapbox about accessibility and how it is making the game. And of course you could buy the 360 uh, port, if you wanted to, yeah. right? It's available on there, but it's more about, again, we're opening up the pool of players that are going to have access to it with it being on PlayStation now and whatnot. And I think that, I mean, your example of Dawn of the Dead, I relate to with uh, like The Thing. The first time I saw that 2K scan yeah. that came out, probably, I don't know now, within 10 years, it's a movie that I've been watching for probably 20 years. And yet when I watched that 2K scan for the first time, I was like, it. It feels the same joy and terror as if I was experiencing yeah. it for the first time. And while I don't know that Alan Wake remaster evoked the same level of emotion from me, it was still very yeah. much a case that, oh, I get to re-experience something that I had a fond time. I have fond memories with the first time I played it, had some snags that I wasn't a huge fan of. And those snags are still sort of relevant, but giving it that fresh coat of paint allows me to enjoy it in a slightly more modern context, but also the conversation, not only like the accessibility portion, but the conversation around the game is something that as a critic and a fan, I'd love to see, right? You truly love to see it. I think it's very interesting. I haven't gone back and compared it, but this is, so this is probably just anecdotal, but like, I feel there is a much more positive reception around the remaster than the original game received and not just because of the 4K touch-ups and whatnot. It does feel like 
there is a more appreciation and understanding of what Alan Wake is. And this remaster is the best case scenario for a conversation that is 11 years too, not too late, but a conversation that should have happened around the original release, I think. Yeah, I think it just comes down to so many games of that era that, as I said, got overlooked, now getting a proper reappraisal. And they are now being seen for the games they were. You know, again, this is something that happens in all sorts of mediums. You know, a film, a book, whatever, people will slag it off when it comes out. And then years later, you get people go, oh, yeah, actually, that was really good, you know, like that. And then there'll be the people that always believe that, going, yes, we told you, see, see, see. And that, would you not say that? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't. I think that Alan Wake, in a way, feels like a more refreshing game to play now. Like, yes. I loved Alan Wake when it came out, but I actually think Alan Wake, if Alan Wake came out for the first time now, I think I would like it more now, just because... Yes. There are certain things that Alan Wake does that the industry as a whole has sort of moved away from mm. uh, in in chasing uh, you know live service models or just the need for everything to be big and everything yes. to be big and expensive looking all the time to have something that lets you you know forces you <laughs> to <laughs> walk around a diner for ten minutes just talking to people. And uh, and doing all these things that I don't think a lot of games nowadays would be allowed to do. Exactly. I think it makes me appreciate Alan Wake more now than I probably did 11 years ago. Well, it's also the type of thing, too, like getting older and getting to revisit games, things that I've been exposed to in the interim of yeah. when I originally played it, going into getting to re-experience something, I mean haven't finished it but i've experienced enough of twin peaks and david lynch is style to get more of an appreciation out of like wandering around this weird small town and these occurrences that i can't explain and the game can't explain sometimes but it's a world that is very welcoming to that weirdness in a way that is compelling that is engaging that does a fantastic job of making you comfortable and being uncomfortable in a way that when it is attempts at replicating that same feeling if the groundwork hasn't been laid that somebody like Lynch lays, then it just doesn't work. And it's more about like asking, why are they doing this rather than the player going, well, of course this is going to happen. Why wouldn't I wander around and meet these two senile guys that want to talk about uh, the lime and the coconut song on the jukebox and whatnot. Like, (laughs) and just, it's just more about making. And it's like one of those maybe more very cliche sort of like critic things to say, but just the idea that it's a space that you want to be in. It doesn't feel like a chore, right? I mean, how many games will let you wander around an environment for like 10 or 15 minutes and you're like, well, that was that was 9 or 14 minutes too long. Whereas with Alan Wake, exploring the environment actually is rewarding. More so than just yeah, like, I, I got a new weapon or I got a new bit of lore. Yeah, I, I honestly think at least upon replaying it that I, I kind of prefer the daytime sections of this game mm. over the horror sections at night because mm. there's just nothing else like them those whenever it comes to those bits so most episodes start with the the daytime sections when you're safe and then it's mm. the second half of the episode where it goes into those encounters that like we said they can get a little repetitive but those sections at the start of each episode where you wander around talking to these quirky eccentric characters and just experiencing all this weird stuff or or learning more about the history of Bright Falls yeah I can't really think of anything else like it except for I guess maybe Deadly Premonition maybe 
but this yeah. is like a better version of Deadly Premonition. Yeah, I mean, Deadly Premonition is like, to me, is like an echo of what Lynch does. You know, it doesn't feel like genuine. It feels like mm. someone being weird for the sake of being weird. Mm. Yeah, and, and I agree. using and using the limitations they have as an excuse into sort of dive into it. It's like, you know, I get why that works for people. I totally do. But it, for me, it, it feels... I, I, I've encountered many game, very, very bad games you know, in, in my time and where developers or PR or whatever have sort of pushed the agenda of like, oh, yeah, we meant this to feel this way and this way. It's like, you didn't. You, you had a limit. You clearly had a limited budget and you knew it and you were trying to find the best angle to sort of work things. Uh, yeah, Deadly Permission uh, has an intelligence behind it, I will absolutely admit. But at the same time, some of that is countered with the bullshit of like, okay, now, if you really wanted to, if you, if you really thought about it, you could make a better game with what you're doing mm. it's like and I think the sequel proved that very much so that, so that even fans of Deadly Premonition were like um, yeah, okay this, this is uh, maybe taking the joke a little too far like that. when you but take no, it that far they, it's not really an inside joke anymore it's just like uh, no, okay it, you've, you're actually starting to buy into this thing that was very much us laughing at it and building a game around it almost yeah, it's yeah. similar to what happened with like Tommy Wiseau, where yes. it's funny at first, and then you start make, he starts making his other shows and his, his other films. Well, it gets but, it gets a little sad at a certain point. Yeah, you're just like honestly, you're, you're drinking your own Kool Aid to a uh, to a detrimental degree. It's kind of like uh, not not even the Kool Aid. You're drinking your own urine. Well, yeah, <laughs> there's that. <laughs> It's kind of like uh, if you were going to watch Animal House, you're like, oh, this is a cool party for a portion of the, for watching a movie. But then it's like, it's not the morning after. You wouldn't want to be there the morning after and see the ramifications no. of everything that happened. You're like, this is oh, actually no. kind of sad and that this is just your life now <laughs> forever, like <laughs> that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think Alan Wake, it's, and, uh, it's only in getting to replay it through this remaster that it is a very... Uh, thoughtful balancing of all of these elements, right? There is mm-hmm. laughing at itself. There is genuine uh, strives to be terrifying and frightening and to have challenging combat and maybe not challenging puzzles, but incorporating puzzles to break up a little bit of the monotony of combat and whatnot. Yeah. And, you know, outside of one or two brief instances, it's a game that feels very self-aware. And that's kind of where I was coming from in referencing Kojima. It's somebody that is very well aware that might be taken to task for the content of some of their games. But if yes. you actually sit down and play it, you're like, they can't not be in on the joke, right? They're very aware of what they're doing, no matter how ridiculous or silly it is. Well, yeah, the, the fact that, you know, they're fans of each other says a lot. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they, they clearly both know what each other are up to in that regard. So, yeah, yeah you're totally right. They, they, they know what they're doing. They know how they're approaching these things and it's not to berate anyone here it's just that there is an audience that grows with every passing year in terms of gaming because 
of how big this business has become that, that just don't get that you know mm-hmm. games to them are a certain thing and if they're not that thing they are the devil the enemy <laughs> they're stupid they're rubbish and it this is not exclusive to games this is a movies you know you it, the whole DC Marvel fucking weirdness that goes on um, is testament to that idea where there's these people that will call fucking third rate Marvel films you know art yeah um, compared to things that are you know and it's breathtaking and there's no nuance to it it's just like I saw a shot I liked that makes this art you know it's like this thing made me cry for a minute because it mean you know it manipulated me. Therefore, it's the best thing ever. You know, it's like, yeah. but the minute you know, I, I think key to this, especially in the horror uh, genre sense of games, is the Last of Us compared to the Last of Us Part Two, where right. you know so many people were into the idea of what happened in the Last of Us, but didn't get the fucking point. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. but, but Joel is an arsehole and he's yeah. selfish and all this stuff. And then went to the sequel and like, like, didn't you know? They're criticizing it for the wrong things, basically. Yeah, they're saying, the oh, well, are... "How dare you do this? And how dare you do that? And how dare you promote this?" And it's like one. How dare you take but, it to its logical conclusion? Yeah, it's <laughs> like it's like. <laughs> People, people that like, oh, we love. I love the last. This is my favorite game. Ever. I played Left Behind and all this. Like, did you play Left Behind? Mm. Did you? Yeah, actually, those people are telling themselves. Behind, yeah, it's like if you played Left Behind, you maybe wouldn't have had so many problems with that. <laughs> yeah. the last part two. It's like, <laughs> which you know, fair enough as a game, bit long, but thematically, I think a lot of the stuff works. You know, for that game, and in terms of what happens as well it, it makes sense and yeah I think we have just because the nature of this industry it, it, we have a very immature audience for a lot of it and which is fine it, it's fine if you're talking about games that have never tried to be anything else but that you know that games that have been dumb forever like the Resident Evil series, you know, which has never, never, ever tried to be anything but the cheesiest shit going. You know, you can embrace that, but when you are putting up anything that tries to push boundaries, there's a fan base that sort of tries to avoid that, you know, tries to avoid the point and will criticise at the game level, which oversimplifies it to me yeah, yeah. I, I just think I, I think we've gone way past the point where you can just look at a game and go yeah well gameplay is five out of ten because it doesn't do these things you know that every other game I like does you know no game has to be the same as another you have to treat each game in an artistic manner now I, I, I think, think a, a game that suffered from that that jumps to my mind that suffered from that in particular is probably Death Stranding a game that does not follow any (laughs) traditional rules at all in terms of story in terms of gameplay in terms of anything and it's fair enough you can justifiably not like that game but there are people who just I think refuse to engage with it on its own terms yeah and 
Oh yeah, I've discussed it so many times. But you know, when Kojima does stuff like that, to me, it's the most fascinating things he does uh, because he's trying something that's outside the norm. And all you ever get, and this is this in games like this, it's never just about like the general consumer and how they they react to games like that. Because I remember, I remember all the way back to Metal Gear Solid 2 and how other people reacted around me to that game compared to me. But it, even critically, you know, it's like you get people go, well, you know, I don't get the point. I don't, you know, this is boring. The story is nonsense. It's like you, you can approach games, you know, and not take all of it together and say that because this bit I don't like everything's awful yeah. you know it's like yeah you know, and I, i've tried to be more like that you know in recent years where even if a game doesn't work maybe on a gameplay level or a story level or whatever if it does something else that interests me i'm all for it you know i'm, yeah. I'm really going to forgive it for its sins if you will and kojima has done that in both ways i think you know over the years um where he's produce games that have been very narratively interesting uh, that have annoyed people but and maybe but yeah, the gameplay hasn't been great and then you have the other stuff where he's done great gameplay and then people have been pissed off because there isn't enough story for them because they don't want to go looking for it you know and we've just discussed this about Alan Wake where you know the balance is just right in terms of uh, providing extra story content. And I think something Kojima could do well to learn from a remedy is uh, finding ways to sort of flesh out his stories without it being a case of you, you only can read this shit, you know, like <laughs> right. that. Because, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And especially because I've said this before. Kojima is terrible at explaining his stories. You know, he's, <laughs> you know, in like the literal sense, he has to do it within the confines of a video game, you know, and that's the only way it works. And if he has to do it in notes and things like that, no, no, it works. But of course, the downside of that is then most people will go, that was nonsense. I don't understand any of that. I, I, what's all this shit? Yeah, and I think Remedy have to be credited on this for Alan Wake, for Troll, even for Max Payne, in balancing that so well where they can get the basic story out, something you can take away from the game, even if you don't interact with it greatly, and still be fairly satisfied but if you really want to dig into it and really take something from it it's there you know mm. yep. as Mark Delaney's uh, article this week on Bloody Disgusting proves it's like you can if you're into the story of Alan Wake you can find all sorts to dig out of it you know you know with the QR codes that have gone in there with the little teasers that, that start to come in line with what was in control um, you know you have this whole thing now where you can sort of debate and discuss and 
theorise about what, where the next direction could be and what was real, what wasn't real about the game. That's amazing, you know, a game that had effectively a definitive end nearly a decade ago is um, still proving it has a room for debate, you know? It's like with, with its DLC episodes, which this is what fascinated me about playing the DLC for the first time like Jay did, is that, wow, you know, it it changes so much. It, it really does. It As much as it annoys me, um, some of the stuff in it, I think story-wise, it pushes it in a different direction that now feels very, very in keeping with what they've done since, you know, and makes you continually second-guess what you originally thought was going on. Yeah, I want to pick yeah. uh, Harrison's brain on the DLC, but I mean, yes. in a second, it's just, I definitely agree that I think the DLC, like, the perception of it is so out of line with what it should be, and I think that Remedy yes. has used the DLC for Alan Wake in the intended way, where you've already got a player buy-in with the core game, right? And the players are already, they're either going to be invested in it or they're not, right? And whether or not they want to play more DLC, it's not, DLC is not going to change their opinion of the no. main game, and it's not necessarily going to win them over with features that were featured in the main game. DLC should really be, in my mind at least, for experimentation with variables that are introduced. And you should yes. be taking risks. It's a shame that DLC is viewed with this sort of negative connotation. There's a whole other conversation tied into like game passes and things like that, uh, or season passes and whatnot. But this feels like DLC that is experimental in the right way. It's experimental yes. in the storytelling, whereas the gameplay variables like, yeah, sure, it's more of the sort of gameplay that we experienced, but it is influenced by the narrative tweaks and the narrative deviations, which... Who knows? Maybe that is they definitely. I mean, Remedy definitely learned something from the DLC, of course, with the core game. And if we ever do inevitably get an Alan Wake two or seeing a further blending of universes between their stories, I mean, D the DLC definitely had to have had somewhat of an impact on that. But mm. enough about me rambling about the DLC. Harrison, how do you find uh, Alan mm. Wake's DLC, which for some people is the uh, the first chance that they've gotten to experience it in the remaster? Yeah, I, I completely agree with everything that you just said about them. And it, it did come from that era where I remember at the time thinking of DLC in those terms that you just described, where whenever DLC was coming out for a game, I would have a bit of a degree of cynicism towards it because so yeah. often it was either something that was clearly carved out <laughs> of the yeah. original experience and sold separately, or it just felt like... Uh, kind of a, a, for lack of a better description, a, a copy and paste of what was already there. Just just a lot of cash-ins at the time. And to play that DLC um, when it came out, it was so refreshing to play something that felt like it was meaningfully expanding upon the story, mm. taking it in new directions. And to an extent, it does introduce new mechanics. The, the, yes. the idea of shining the light on the words to create um, certain resources and environmental things it is introduced at the end of Alan Wake, but it's it's sort of more of just a it's in a in a section that doesn't really have any combat or anything, whereas this brings yeah. it properly to the fore. It all connects as well, you know. It's like it isn't just done for no reason. It's like what happens at the end of Alan Wake and into the DLC with that 
all ties in. It makes sense when you think about it. And they have some really, really memorable, interesting set pieces. There's a bit in the second one, the writer, where you run in like a Ferris wheel type house, which yes. is unlike anything else in the rest of the game. And I don't know, at the time, it felt like most DLCs were just, you know, here's the same enemies you fought before in a slightly new environment and you would just fight through it. To have something that felt this different and new was really, really cool at the time. And I think it, when you play it now, not as DLC, but just as kind of part of the experience with the remaster, yes. it's it just feels like a logical continuation of the rest of the game. It feels like you go from episode six straight into that DLC and it completely flows. Yeah, it really does. And, you know, the thing, especially for like myself and Jay, where you haven't had that before, it really does just slot nicely into that story perfectly. You know, it it really does. And again, that just comes back to what Remedy have done, where they've, clearly thought the story out ahead of time they're not just being told by someone higher up to say no no no, you need to add some extra stuff to the story now and that's it so add whatever it makes some shit up you know, like that it's like they clearly had this idea and it, it it was supposed to i assume act as like a bridging act between this and a sequel mm. that, that unfortunately never happened as Intentioned, you know, the Remedy have admitted they were working on a sequel and, you know, it just didn't work out um, for whatever reason. And, but I feel like, like, the DLC in control will sort of now act as the new catalyst for that and to push that story forward. So I, I'm glad because I, I think the DLC episodes are just enough to push that story to a new level, you know, and to, to, to give it a sequel that deserves. And there are so many games that wouldn't even have bothered, you know, would never have bothered to bridge things, you know, the way that that game did. And yeah. especially at that time, you know, now, you know, in this post-Disney Marvel age where everything's a fucking bridge, you know, <laughs> It's amazing that back then that a game would even try to sort of give you a bridging episode to a sequel that unfortunately never happened. I'm just going to say the only criticism that I really have of the DLC is it's, it's inherent to the premise, but one of my yes. favourite things about Alan Wake is Bright Falls as a setting. It's mm. this place with a tangible sense of history that you yes. get to explore. When you're playing these DLCs, you're in this dream space that yeah, is yeah. being const- Alan frequently says that it feels like this place is just being made up as I go along it's just yeah. places from the past being awkwardly shoved together while yeah. I get that that's the premise I do think that it loses a little something in yes. that mood yeah. uh, just just because I personally really love delving into the history of Bright Falls and you know seeing all the stuff like there's that tree ring in the yes. forest at one point yeah. that goes into all the different <laughs> events from different years. You lose some of that. Yeah. I think, unfortunately, just because of the end of the game proper, it just means that's what they have to do. You know, it's like, yeah. it short of doing the sequel, you know, 
they could only go so far. And I think, again, there's, there's a smartness to sort of being an echo of what came before this, going back to this meta nature of what's going on and taking it to its logical conclusion, maybe. You know? it, it felt right. I, I agree that maybe that's not so satisfying when you've, when what you want to do is hear and explore more of what Bright Falls is. Yeah. But who's to say we won't get that one day? I, you know, before now, that would have been the most frustrating thing you know, for anyone playing the game back in the day is to not know if you're ever going to get that again. You know, it, yeah. not if you were never going to come back, you know. I mean, personally, I've never played American Nightmare, so I don't know what that does for this uh, series. So, yeah, I I never played that one. Um, I wanted to actually ask Harrison if he had played that because I think that, from my understanding of it at least, I never played it. That seems to be an element that they expanded on, and yet the element is the game's combat, and that never was mm. the main drive, at least for me. Right? That's not was not the most enjoyable yeah. part. Uh, no. It sounds like after 90 minutes, it doesn't sound like the combat was ever the highlight of Alan Wake for us. So from afar, it just seems like a strange decision to make an entire uh, arc. I believe it was Xbox Live Arcade game that's all yeah. based around an expansion of the combat, which was argu- arguably the weakest feature of Alan Wake. It certainly is. I think that there are some really enjoyable combat sequences in Alan Wake. They're sort of the, the more... Uh, unique set pieces like there's a there's a really fun bit where you have a fight in a in like an old concert uh, setup where you know oh, where yeah. Barry's operating the fireworks and all the the lightning rigs. Moments like that, I enjoy the combat in. It is just the sort of the, the more mundane combat encounters where you're constantly running through the woods, uh, getting circled by enemies. Ironically, that's. When you think about it, it's the same band that, that, that perpetuate probably one of the best sequences of control yeah, yeah. in the, the Astro. You know, it, it it's crazy that, that those you know sections of the games, those games stand out pretty much because of the music that accompanies them. But they yeah. are just such different things within the games they're in. Yeah, and it's like. And again, it just it feels very deliberate, you know. It, it feels like that that was the plan all along, you know, just to have something that sort of echoed what was there in Alan Wake. One thing that I wanted to take it back to a second that uh, Harrison mentioned was the setting itself of Alan Wake and how, like he mentioned, and people obviously can't see because this is an audio version, but we're on Zoom chatting. When he mentioned the tree ring, I like threw up like the double thumbs up because that is. <laughs> such a fundamental storytelling element of this game of environmental storytelling that I was not able to appreciate when I was younger and played this game for the first time I was like well I'm not going to read all this shit it's tied to like a tree ring what could really (laughs) what could really be a value here but something as on paper that's as mundane as like I'm going to interact with the tree ring or it makes me think about when you're walking through uh, an old mining village and you it's like a museum almost outside of this abandoned mm. mining village that they said in the history of it has been abandoned overnight essentially and you can go around and read some of the little excerpts from uh, different exhibits that are there little elements like that do such a fantastic job of building the world of Alan Wake and don't make it feel oppressive it doesn't feel like you're getting beat over the head with a history book because 
there's the player being forced to engage with these things. And even if it is tied to some real history that they could have already known or whether or not it's tied to certain elements that maybe don't necessarily give them a greater appreciation of Alan's current struggle, it just further reinforces that this is a fully fleshed out world that feels like it's been lived in to a degree that really just boosts up the entire experience in a way that, yeah, yeah, you could see it as being sort of um, just additional flavor text, but it's all in service of something. And that takes it back to like the purposefulness with which Remedy approaches all their games, no matter how much of a deviation, something like Alan Wake might've been from Max Payne. It's like, well, when you actually look at it, you can see the attention to detail. You can see how they kind of run from one project to the next. And it feels like this gradual um, sort of capitalizing on elements that were intriguing, but maybe weren't necessarily expanded on or refined in a way that was to their true potential. And that's something that I think is really interesting when you look at the history of Remedy and you go from Max Payne, you go to Alan Wake, you go to Quantum Break and all the way up to Control and like thinking about the future. It's interesting that you can move forwards throughout their history of games and see the progression and the further uh, chasing after experimental ideas that they introduce. And yet the product itself still speaks for itself. It doesn't feel like just a lily pad of ideas, which is very rare, I think. I think there's definitely studios out there where you see one game that they made that's completely random from the previous thing they made, and then history has not been as kind to it as maybe it has been to Alan Wake in some regards. Not perfect, but it is, again, this remaster feels like the perfect version of an imperfect game. Mm. This is one of those games that has... It's very rewarding to see conversations popping up and praise popping up around a game that did not initially receive it. And it's it's one of those things where this is definitely going to be the most uh, the most recent example of a game that's received a remaster that it sets a new standard for remasters, but it further reinforces the importance of them. It's not just like, yeah. oh, we want to make more money off of a prettier version of something old that we've made. That kind of like very cynical view of... Uh, remasters and remakes and whatnot it there is a greater purpose in this whether it be self-serving to a degree in terms of like generating interest for an Alan Wake 2 but also the overall preservation of games right I mean the reality is is that people on PlayStation would never experience this and perhaps this will be the way that this is their intro to hell I'll check out Control I'll check out um, I don't believe actually Quantum Break is on PlayStation but anyways in regards to getting to experience some of that um, that remedy recipe if, as it were, um, getting to further generate interest in older projects but also in the future potentially of, uh, of remedy. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right because while there is a lot of cynicism about the constant, uh, the industry constantly remastering games it is definitely important for uh, like you said for preservation um, I've never been able to play the proper version of Silent Hill 2 the only version of Silent Hill 2 is the same one that you played, yep. which is the, the HD collection. Yep. And yep. if there was a proper remaster of Silent Hill 2, like there is for this, I'd be all over it. Because oh. even though I have experienced Silent Hill 2, I'm kind of I'm told that I haven't really experienced yeah. Silent I, Hill like, 2. And like for me, it was like I, I had played it back in the day, but because it's so long ago, I by the time I came to the remaster, it's like 
I, I wouldn't have known the difference. I really wouldn't because it just it wasn't the kind of game that stuck with me to that level, you know, where, where I would have really noticed it. I think you really have to be a super fan of a game to really understand how different a game feels, you know, and yeah. or, or, you know, just the remaster has that bad, you know. <laughs> it's a... Uh, as I said at the time, it's like that was a remaster that it was the best they could do with the bad job they'd done in making sure that game was left intact, you know. And whereas other companies have had all the resources and not done the right thing by their remasters, so you know, I, I think this has been a general positive in recent years is that. Before it was like it's either remake the game entirely because we we're scared to even try and do the balance between what was and what is, or you know you lazily port the game that once was across and hope that it works like it was, and sometimes it doesn't because you don't have all the code. And we've discussed this many a time already with stuff like Quake, where it's like. They've always understood the legacy was necessary and, and to keep that going. And there was a game where it showed all throughout. Alan Wake feels very much in the middle, you know, where it's a case of like, there are things, because it's from a different era of gaming, you cannot really change too much without fully remaking it, you know. And if you're just trying to show people, the natural step between what you're doing now and what you used to do. Brilliant. That's what it does. It works perfectly. And it should be accepted as such. But, yeah, it's a tricky one. It's like, I think that's the truest way this could have ever come out, you know, as a game. Like we said before, Quake was 1996, 97, and that's different. Uh, it's so so far away that any improvements you make, the audience that remembers it is so small now that you cannot really have any sort of critical critical consensus about it. You know, it, it's basically going to be on memory because PC game. It's been a PC game for so many years, and PC gaming has ensured that it is slightly improved over the years. And this, for anyone else who may have experienced it back then, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, exactly like I remember, you know, just more, you know, comfortable to use. This being like a decade apart, this is the tricky period where, you know, games were finding their comfort zone. They were finally becoming, you know, a certain kind of thing, uh, you know. As much as people didn't like everything about that period, this works in very much the same way. I feel, you know, it, it does everything it needs to do as a remake and remaster. Uh, sorry, if you will, of the original. It, it doesn't push things too far. Doesn't fundamentally change things, but it gets it. It produces the game as is, 
but pushes it a little more to what the studio is doing now. And I think a lot of remasters now, it's the case that the studio behind the original game is dead. So you don't really have their input or need to worry about what they give and thought about what you're doing. And here it's the case, it's like the people at the forefront of this remaster are the people that made the game in the first place. So they can just say, this is how we want it to be. And it feels more honest to me uh, as a remaster than some remasters have because they're not trying to trip people into thinking something. You know, they're try- they are presenting as is with a few improvements that might make it a bit more palatable. And, and, and that's absolutely the way it should be. It's just an unfortunate side effect of the industry we're in, where you know companies behind things can can die several times over before they you know the things they made ever get a second shot. You know, and it, it's sad. You know, you know, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, Capcom have been very much proof of that in recent years, where you know they can remake classic games and understand just about well enough because they have just enough of the people and respect behind that franchise to make it work. And then you look at the other side of it. You look at Konami who will put out remasters that don't really get everything. They never bother to preserve what made those remasters work. The original versions worked to begin with. And it's sad, but it's the tricky way it's going to be. And I think the big positive we can take now, and I think everything that has shown in the last 10 years is that you can now remaster stuff and there's a very good chance you will have all the assets that were there before to use and to reshape the game in, in your image whilst retaining what it was. Now, back then, I feel like many companies didn't really ever think about that. They never, they never thought about a legacy for their games. And as such, we end up with situations where, like, for years, Final Fantasy VIII couldn't be remastered because they, they were missing parts of the code until they finally found it behind the sofa or whatever. And Silent Hill 2, you know, has all these issues in its own remaster because... Konami just shrugged their shoulders we didn't ever think to keep everything to do with the game intact and I get it you you can make villains of Konami for that but they aren't the only company to do it it's uh, it's, it's similar to what happens with the with the beginning of the film industry you know there's there's so many silent films that are just no one ever thought that we would need to preserve these things because they were just throwaway entertainment. And that's yeah. what and it's video games rarely, were for a period yeah. of time. It's rarely ever, from films from that period, it's rarely ever like anything from the people responsible that make that happen, you know, that yeah. bring those films back to life. It's usually enthusiasts that, that, that do it. And you see that even in this industry, you know, it's modders that will. Uh, make a game popular again before the company finally steps in and goes, oh, actually, 
we see that you've basically made our game popular in your own little way now you've got to stop well we're going to do it that sort of thing you know it's like yeah. we've literally just seen it this last week with Grand Theft Auto um, you know to the point where Rockstar are going to shell the old version of the, versions of GTA 3 to San Andreas so that they don't have to worry about the modders anymore by making these new remastered versions of those games that don't have to rely on the mods so much it's horrible and cynical in one, in one way but you can see at least that the people that did that have effectively made those games happen you know made those remasters happen and yeah. this is brilliant and it will always be brilliant and, and for older games especially and I hope that continues and I said with newer games it's less of a problem because you can find more agreeable contracts with people now uh, to get your stuff back. You know, as we said at the beginning of this, you know, Remedy got Alan Wake back, you know, the, the IP from Microsoft. And ultimately, here we are. They are now putting the game out on all sorts of places with the help of Epic. So, yeah, it, it's great. I, I just, it's a tricky time. But at the same time, I think it's very positive sort of time if you want to remaster a game from the last 10 to 15 years. Yeah, it, I think it speaks to just the uh, the infancy of games media, especially con- uh, contrasted to that of film, right? Film has been around yes. a lot longer, so film is much more in line with the current thinking in terms of preservation and all of these things. And with games, it just feels like within the last 10 years, they're sort of as a whole catching up with that idea, right? There's still these definitely less than stellar uh, attempts being made at it, but yeah. to be realistic about it, it's better to have a shoddy attempt than to have no attempt at all. And I mean, the further removed you get from a release, the more likely things are going to become lost and whatnot. So I would rather have people that don't feel like they're just basically like contract workers that are coming in to touch something up and they're like, yeah, yeah, you know, whatever. But at the same time, it's like, well, if the original developers, and this isn't me talking about uh, Alan Wake, I'm thinking again, always have the Silent Hill HD uh, collection in the back of my brain. But the idea that people aren't going to pay this respect to something to preserve it properly, you have these issues with like the perversion of the original version and all of these things. But yes, I mean, at least when I'm thinking more recently in terms of like the Silent Hill HD collection, it's like, well, realistically... I would rather have this sort of like perversion version of it than nothing at all. And I mean, granted again, outside of, I understand that for PC, there's all this mod work and everything that's being done, but you gotta, it's one of those things you have to think about gaming as a whole, right? It's like the reality is, is that a majority of gamers are not going to be able to, or not that they're not able to, they're not interested in, or they don't even know it exists. Right. I mean, the three of us are pretty tuned into games and film and all of these things. So we, uh, we know more about maybe niche games or niche communities that are keeping games alive and things like that, but it's not the reality for a majority of people that consume games or consume media or movies and whatnot. Um, and it's just Alan Wake definitely feels like a labor of love from people that, like Neil said, they're being very honest with this remaster. They're not trying to rewrite yeah. history. They're not trying to rewrite the game or the product and all of these things. It feels like a very honest remaster and an honest effort to preserve something in the most 
respectable means possible, but also the most authentic. Mm. Authentic in a way that I think is rare. We have, again, a lot of maybe good attempts at remasters and remakes that maybe miss the mark. But at the same time, I think, again, it's better to have the effort in doing that than no effort being done at all, which then it's a slippery slope of all of a sudden you're 10, I mean, 15 years, 20 years removed from Alan Wake. If we didn't have a remaster, that game becomes a a further distant memory for a large portion of people that play games. But I guess in wrapping up, um, Harrison, were there any elements sort of of Alan Wake that uh, I glossed over that you think have really held up or elements that uh, make it a standout horror experience 11 years later? I think one thing that, aside from the music, which is something that we didn't really touch on, but the music is amazing in this game. Yes, uh, both the score and the the collection of licensed tracks. Um, which were preserved for uh, remaster, yeah. right? They, I mean, they brought it back to the previous regular digital versions of Alan Wake, but seeing them furthermore brought back for the remaster was definitely a welcome, uh, welcome addition. Yeah, 100%. And they they use them so well when it comes to, like, ending the episodes in particular. Those are some of the best song yes. uses in the whole thing. Is 100%. When, um, the Roy Orbison one at the end of the first episode, which is obviously a uh, reference to Blue Velvet, mm-hmm. um, is an amazing song choice in that game. And there are so many. And they're, they're all... None of them are obvious, which is what I, I think I like about it so much. Yes. Yeah. Uh, they, they just today they revealed the, the track list for the new Guardians of the Galaxy game and mm. you look through it and it's like every obvious uh, 80s song that you could think of it's like it's Take On Me it's Rick Astley yeah. it's, it, it's, it becomes, that is a perfect example of something being a copy of a copy you know it's mm. like they're not evoking the comics there they are evoking the films and the spirit of James Gunn but if you're not James Gunn and you're doing it it's not the same it's exactly you know remedies you know intuition and feelings towards how they handle soundtracks in their games is there throughout and they have kept it in line with that they've not been forced to add stuff by Epic you know who have helped fund this remaster now, they are just getting it done, same as it was, same as it ever was. And yeah. as you say, it makes perfect sense, the stuff they've got in there, because it's not straightforward, up-in-your-face stuff, which you know, I think the game does so well is that it has both, you know. It has stuff that is so hokey and, like, melodramatic and very blunt, but it also has this ambiguity that is just so enticing and so exciting and the be- all the best things do that I, I feel that it's not the stuff that's one way or the other it's the stuff that marries both together you know, that, that gets that you need an accessible level to your entertainment and then to make it better you need stuff that you want to explore further once you've finished it where you're like well, hang on, I don't know about this and this and this, so I, I want to see what more there is to it. You you want to, you know, the best in any media will allow that, it will allow you to go in, dive into its world and really just swim around in it, see all the sights there are. And yeah, Remedy are excellent at that. 
Got to give a shout out to uh, Alan Wake's composer, Petri Alonko. But yeah, I think mm. it does such a fantastic job of capturing the mood and the melodrama elements, right? I think that, yes. again, this kind of speaks to Remedy's core philosophy in terms of the way they make games. Everything complements everything. Nothing is ever truly feels out of touch with them being in on the joke. Again, it comes back to them being yes. very aware of what they're making. It's not just in the writing. It's not just in the humor. It's not just in the music and whatnot. It's like everything complements everything in a way that is so rare. And yet it's so seamless that it. I think it is largely overlooked in a way that Remedy for, you know, Control being named one of the best games of the year and whatnot, like they don't get enough credit, I think, largely in them making these very niche genre focused experiences that are just so well refined in the aesthetic mm -hmm. of it yeah 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 it comes back to that what i was saying before it's like people will take it at surface value and, and believe and take it as a game you know and how it plays and it's like watching a movie and taking it on just how it looks you know it's like you can't it's like it, sure it works for some things you know that how it looks is a big important part but you can't then just not look at the rest of it you know you have to appreciate what it does in other areas or doesn't do yeah. i mean and yeah so it becomes its own little issue and a lot of the things with control with alan wake whatever it, it comes down to that it's just like it gets treated like a game you know and the definition of that has changed so much in so many ways in, in even in the years since Alan Wake came out yeah that it, it no longer really should apply in such a singular criticism Alan Wake I think largely feels like a casualty of the era that it was released in and that it mm. is a game that again it was ahead of its time in that regard of pushing the boundaries of what a game can be right and i think yes. i mean i will go so far as to say that i don't think alan wake is a particularly fun game to play it's a fun experience no. that i want to keep experiencing and it pushed me through all the way to the 10 or 11 hours that it takes to complete the game but at the same time it's not a game that i'm recommending to anybody based on like the combat or the gameplay no, mechanics no, no. But we talked for two hours and we didn't mention the driving. <laughs> Holy Christ. But it is an example, though, I, I think. Mean, of... meet, I will add, sorry, um, you know, I remember the slagging off that GTA 4 got for its driving. <laughs> and that was integral to that game. Yeah. And I was fine with that. So Alan Wakes is nothing you know, to me <laughs> compared to that. <laughs> understood that i think the driving gta 4 is great i don't i never yeah, understood i mean that. yeah that, that's a that's a whole other thing but it is just above just calling it a game and how it feels as a game you know it, it, it is an experience and a thing you have to live in and feel you know yeah and it just really does just get forgotten so often that you games aren't just about manipulative emotional beats and like good gameplay loops you know yeah they are great when they work death loop perfect example but you know that game also has great writing and other things and it doesn't matter 
So here, I think it's like you can't just say because a game doesn't have one thing or the other that it doesn't count. You know, it's like yeah. when you hear, you know, for all the games that are, are labeled walking simulators, for instance, they are they are always like, oh well, yes, great story, but they're not great games because they don't do this, this, and this. You know, like you don't have to craft your fucking weapons and you don't have to <laughs> do your XP and shit. That, that, mm. Oh, so it's an awful game. It's not a real game, you know, and yet it is because it at the core of it and the core of any game that doesn't really drive to just be about how you play it it's you know there's something in there that you can only get from playing something you know even the if we take uh, I don't know like the most definitive example of like a walking simulator probably something like uh, everybody's gone to the rapture mm. yes just watching that game watching a let's play of that game is still not the same as actually doing it yourself. No. Even no. though the interactive elements of it are relatively minimal, it's right. still no, fundamentally different. You don't have any agency mm. in watching yeah. it. It's like, and that is the key difference. And games that are designed to be watched just don't feel right, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like, it, they can work, but I think you do not, and you never will, get the same experience as playing the game because that's the point yeah you are you have the agency you the person you are are making that stuff happen you know down to the tiniest detail which direction you move yeah the tiniest direction you move in is you that is you it may not feel like much in the grand scheme of things but it matters that quarter turn you make is very different to what the next person might make. Like in a film, it's not. You know, you're watching it as is intended. A curtailed like, experience. Yeah. yeah, you are watching what another person is doing, and that, that's what streaming and YouTube videos don't get. You know, it's like you are just experiencing someone else's experience, and it, it's. I get it, and how that can be enjoyable for people. And how that's a whole subset from what we have now, but it's not a substitute for playing the game. You, yeah, it, it, you cannot compare. You, you cannot compare the, the two things because games, if you're going to critique them, you have to play them. You yes. literally, you have to. You can't watch videos of gaming and go, well, "That looks shit." It's like, yes, you can. It's not like films where you can look at trailer and go, "That looks shit," because there are two differences it's like you know you can play a demo of the game and say that felt shit I don't like that but you cannot just watch trailer and say the same really you know you, you can have bad vibes about something and feel a bit apprehensive but you cannot just turn around and say comprehensively no this is shit that's it I'm right you're wrong that's it because nah there are, I can think of so many games that translate Badly, in terms of trailers and videos, and I mean, you look Deathloop is a yeah, Death Stranding. Deathloop is a great example where people were sick of seeing videos of it like that, and you know, then reviews came out and said how wonderful it is, and rightly so because it is, and that's it because that's the experience. It's like 
And it's often where Arcane as a studio are suffering is because their games need to be experienced, not watched on Twitch, not watched on YouTube, not, not watched through trailers. You need to play it to really get it because it's immersive. The whole point is an immersive sim. That's yep. the game you're playing. Like that. And Alan Wake is not that kind of game, but it very much relies on your you know interaction with the narrative you know, and what you do with it. What you choose to read, what you choose to find, who you choose yes. to speak to. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah, it's like, and it matters. It really does matter. And yeah, at the end of the day, this is the difference. This is the key difference. And as much as it's big business to have Twitch streams and the like, it only really suits certain games. And narrative led games, especially, it does not work for. I think Alan Wake is definitely one of those games that has gotten a second wind, essentially, Mm. and it's gotten the proper, finally, conversation surrounding it and um, just in general of, like, people maybe going into it with an understanding of what it is rather than kind of bouncing off of this. What is what is this? I don't really understand what this is and why it's so different from what I've been playing and whether that be the sort of trending of episodic games being more... uh, frequent and that's more in terms of the structure of it right rather than the release is what i'm referencing but i think in general like alan wake is one of those games that stands as a fantastic example of something that is finally getting its proper uh proper praise but also like like we talked about with being a remaster and being finally another version of or another example rather of a game that is being preserved in the right way it is a game that is being uh championed very much so by the creators of it originally and getting to touch it up to the degree that it's not a like we've talked about a perversion of the past and is more in line with what the original product was but with certain uh, more modern amenities that will allow it to be more palatable to uh, current generation players or just more of a, uh, a wide swath of gamers and not so much the uh, the niche circle that experienced it the first time around but uh, Harrison it was a pleasure finally getting to uh, meet and chat about horror with you and specifically Alan Wake for a safe room so thank you for your time no, no, thank you very much for having me I really enjoyed it absolutely and we uh, we look forward to hopefully chatting with you again in the future yeah look forward to it too thank you again Thank you for listening to another episode of Safe Room. Please consider following and rating the show on your preferred podcast platform. And for updates on the show, follow us on Twitter at Safe Room Pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you guys next week.